I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the latest round of popular protests that have broken out in Iraq and Egypt. I'm joined by Maria Fantapier and Michael Wahid Hanna. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. In the last few weeks or in the last month, we've had some really unexpected rounds of, of, of major massive uh, public protest and, uh, and pretty unprecedented uh, response in Iraq and Egypt. Some, some people have, have tried to liken this to a second round of the Arab revolts or another Arab spring. Uh, I am less clear on what I think is going on, which is why I asked both of you to come on the podcast and uh, help us figure out what is happening and then try to make sense of it. Uh, I think we should start with the fresher uh, with the fresher protests, which are still going on at the time of this recording in Iraq. Maria, tell us what exactly is happening with this with this popular revolt. Well, um, thank you for having me, Tanasi. Um, well, uh, the protest started on uh, October 1st and uh, are still uh, ongoing until now. Um, they have started... Uh, um, Let's say that the trigger of this protest has been the, the uh, announcement of the prime minister's decision to demote a very popular uh, general who was a national, uh, still a national hero um, and commander of the um, who led the war against uh, ISIS and the liberation of of, Mo, of Mosul, Abdul Wahab Saadi, and um, uh, then from that uh, moment on, the news went uh, viral on social media, and of course already there was. A lot of uh, um, simmering uh, discontent, um, not vis-à-vis -vis of this government in particular, but uh, in in vis-à-vis -vis of every single government that has governed uh, Iraq uh, in the last uh, um, in the last uh, five to six years, and uh, these are um, accumulated grievances of of people, largely uh, young Iraqis, who um, see uh, the political class who took over power after 2003 um, as having failed to provide uh, governance, to provide uh, good services, but more generally really to provide prospects for an entire generation of millennials who is now um, grown up enough to be aware of this and to suffer from the consequences of this. So epic governance failure and a, a sort of, not spiritual, but a sort of uh, 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 ideological failure to offer some hope for the future for for Iraq's uh, growing population. There was a, a lot of expectation that protests would break out this summer in a repeat of the previous summer's protests in Basra. Uh, and lots of Iraq experts and Iraqi politicians were crossing their fingers about whether the government would get through the summer. Uh, so I don't know if you can if you can answer this, but how come the protests didn't break out during the hot, uncomfortable, miserable summer, uh, and then unexpectedly a month after the end of summer uh, exploded so forcefully? What was the trigger? There is a reason for that, is that popular protests cannot be predicted because they come together uh, only as a result of several number of variables. 
um, there is always a trigger, and often this trigger has been one of the expression of this failure of governance, meaning like last summer during the protest in Basra, it was the crisis of, of, of water, uh, but in other cases it was about scandals and corruption. Um, so the triggers were different. In this, ta- this time, the, tra- the trigger, as I said, it was the demotion of this very popular uh, general. But um, again, um, the, the, the elements can come together at any point and in different locations of the country. So it's very um, actually unpredictable to, to say when they will happen. What, however, is predictable is to say that there is an uh, unaddressed problem um, of uh, um, disengagement from the political leadership vis-a-vis of the Iraqi society. So this government, as the previous one, it's sitting into the green zone and which is, I mean, into the, the, the government buildings. And it's continuing on with very um, traditional way of, of, of governing the country, which is through basically um, clientelist redistribution of, of, resor- of oil generated resources and um, also down through a massive and um, very dysfunctional bureaucracy that really doesn't serve its population. So um, this this way um, of, of governing the country has been going on even before uh, the, I mean, it's been going on since, the 2000, since 2003 and it has remained the same despite several calls for reform. Um, so several sections of the society, in particular the large, the, the, the young people who are the large demographic majority of the Iraqi society, nearly the 67% of it, of course they suffer um, of, of the consequences of this of this, of this disengagement and therefore uh, protest become a different point um, and a way to actually express this sense of, uh, um, of disillusion and this sense of really um, uh, also disappointment vis-a-vis of a political class and of a system that which they don't see to have a stake into. And they feel that the protests are the only way actually in which they can put pressure on this political class to deliver. So in a way, an amorphous explosion of rage, but one that's intended maybe without a specific agenda to to pressure the governing class to, to acknowledge Iraq's population and its needs. Is there an organizing force behind these these, these protests? I mean, they're they're in, they're they're in almost every Shia part of the country. Rose up with with unbelievable uh, force and bravery. So um, it's it's actually quite interesting to see that. Uh, um, uh, protests, they are effective in shaking um, the, the political establishment because as it happened also in this case, they actually send shocks ways to the, to the government and also create an entire political crisis. Um, and, and so in that they are effective. However, they're less effective in translating into a, um, uh, a sort of a roadmap or, or like for engagement really with the government in which the government then can be held accountable. So the pattern that always happened in the past since 2015, when the largest process happened until now, is that there is this wave of protest. The government actually respond with uh, stop cut 
stopgap measures, cosmetic um, uh, reforms and repression. And then uh, there is a moment in which the, po- po- the, the protests are appeased. And then after several months, the, the protests return. So other leaders or parties that are sponsoring this? Again, like the, the protest movement is actually um, leaderless. So there is no leaders because uh, um, what happens is that every time that the, the, the government tried actually to, um, uh, to engage with the representative of the protest, uh, these representatives were uh, seen as co-opted by the government and therefore they lost actually the legitimacy of the protest movement uh, as a whole. So this movement uh, proceeds as a movement that first wants to stay outside the political process, does not want to engage into the elections and also does want to continue to be um, leaderless. Of course, there is like coordinators, people who are actually social media influencer who starts up social media campaigns and start to um, actually um, mobilize um, people in specific location of, of the city and of, over specific issues. And so there, there are definitely coordinators and there is also a quite organized civil society community that supports the move, supports the movement. But again, uh, also the movement is made of people that are not necessarily part of the mid upper middle class civil society. It's also made of lower middle class um, and and not necessarily educated people who are simply disenfranchised, so uh, even economically. Um, So it's a very, uh, there is a a lot of difference within this movement. So the problem now that the protester will have to face is really how to find at least intermediaries, not leaders, but intermediaries through which actually um, in some way create uh, um, uh, channels of uh, engagement uh, with uh, state bureaucracy and with government agency. What about the government's response? I mean, with more than 100 people killed, thousands injured, is this characteristic of the of the violence with which the state has responded to protests in Iraq or is this a new darker turn? So this the the, the level of repression has been unprecedented um, because over um, 100 people or at least 110 people have been killed. There are also members of the security forces within this number, but the large majority of the of the of this number includes actually protesters. Um, the fact that these uh, uh, protests were particularly um, uh, deadly it's that um, it's it's for several reasons. First of all, um, because in the previous protest, uh, several political actors and religious actors uh, like Muqtada Sadr and also um, the um, highest religious authority, the Ayatollah Ali Sistani, functioned or served as a sort of uh, um, leaders in this movement and organized the movement. In this case, they could not do so because their political capital had been already exhausted previously when they had promised to the protesters that they would have pressure the government to deliver change while this change didn't happen. The second um, uh, reason why this uh, repression was particularly uh, strong is that the prime minister, it's um, a very, it's it's a figure that uh, 
in some way it's weaker compared to the previous prime ministers in terms of uh, uh, political party support. He's still dependent on several polit strong political parties in parliament who are also having a high level position in the security establishment. So what probably has happened is that the prime minister weakness combined with the usual, um, uh, of, with the sort of culture of repression that also still exists within the Iraqi security uh, service, especially in the Ministry of Interior, has left the security official in charge of really dealing with the protester. The security official mindset is that one of securitizing the process and even and prioritize repression over engagement. And that actually led to um, um, a bloody, blood, one of the, I mean, I will say the, it's the highest toll of casualties since 2003 in terms of popular protest. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Michael uh, Wahid Hanna about what's been happening in Iraq. And then uh, Michael and Maria in the third part of this conversation are going to uh, try and help us make sense of what this means for authoritarian resurgence or popular uh, prospects for popular revolt. Uh, we'll be right back. At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voice and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. I'm Lucy Muirhead, Chief Strategy Officer at the Century Foundation. We work to reduce inequality, foster opportunity, and promote peace and security, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. In the Century Ahead, we'll continue to prioritise rigour over reactivity elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm talking to Maria Fantapier and to Michael Wiedhanna about the latest uh, revival of popular protest in the Arab world. Uh, we've been hearing about what happened in Iraq over the past uh, few weeks, and now uh, we're going to turn to Michael uh, to learn more about this uh, up uprising if we're going to call it that, that happened in Egypt at, at, a, at a historical period when everyone who uh, uh, I was hearing from was saying that it was impossible to imagine people in Egypt ever protesting again because of the levels of repression. What happened there? Well, uh, it's interesting because uh, in, in Iraq, we would say that the protests were predictable and the response was unpredictable in the level of repression. In Egypt, it is the protest that was unpredictable and the response that was predictable. Um, it, it did catch a lot of people, including me, uh, off guard because, as you say, the levels of repression are such uh, that uh, popular protest is a, uh, a very dangerous endeavor. Um, alongside that repression is the very active uh, destruction of organized political life. Uh, it's, it's, it's near impossible for uh, political opposition uh, to exist, um, to organize, and to mobilize. And, and for those reasons, it seemed very unlikely um, that Egypt could face a, a, another moment like it did in 2011. The big lesson that the security establishment took from um, the, the mobilization and popular uprising of, of January 25th um, is that they would never allow those conditions uh, to exist again. And by those conditions, I mean... Uh, the incremental change that happened over many years, beginning really in 2000 uh, until 2011, Mubarak uh, effectively allowed for 
um, safety valves, uh, controlled opposition politics. Uh, but all of these incremental steps effectively expanded the political imagination of Egyptians uh, and, and led to um, led to the events of 2011. So since 2013, there's been literally no uh, no safety valves allowed and the political imagination has been systematically walled off by, by the authoritarian regime of Sisi. And yet, how, how did, I mean, tell us what we saw happen and what triggered it and, and, and how in the hell did that get through this supposedly impregnable authoritarian wall. Yeah, and, and some of the people that were most shocked were the activist class of 2011 to 2013 because they weren't part of this uh, latest round of protest. Um, you know, the, the one new variable um, that is notable are, are these recordings that have been making their way into Egypt by uh, a former contractor with the military named Muhammad Ali. Uh, he is... Um, effectively airing um, the corrupt business practices uh, of the Egyptian military uh, and laying this bare uh, in unverified ways, but in believable ways and capturing a huge audience. Uh, he's laying bare uh, the corruption uh, that he alleges exists uh, in Sisi's Egypt. And um, part of the authoritarian bargain um, of, uh, of Sisi was that uh, yes, uh, we, he's coming in with something like an iron fist. Um, he is going to rein in the chaos and the potential for real dangerous fragmentation that other countries in the region uh, have experienced, uh, and that this uh, tight leadership was going to produce results. Uh, and in fact, what we've seen since really 2013, 2014, when he formally became president, um, is austerity, uh, but there's been no payoff. Uh, and so uh, it is austerity with no job growth. Uh, uh, there has Inflation is coming down, but there's been very serious inflation. So the economic prospects of people, uh, uh, for people, uh, remain quite dim. And So this tracks what Maria was telling us about in Iraq, the, a bleak present and no prospects for future improvement. Yeah, absolutely. Egypt needs to produce, uh, I think the estimate from the IMF is 700,000 new jobs a year just to, to keep up with population growth. Uh, and uh, there, that, there is no payoff. And so... Um, you know, we've known that there is increasing discontent. Uh, the material conditions for people's lives are uh, are bleak. Um, yet, it is surprising that that this uh, that this uh, formed into something like a popular protest. Now, we shouldn't get carried away. I mean, how big were they? How how? Yeah, I mean, these were scattered protests, not just in Cairo. Uh, uh, so throughout Egypt, which is also interesting and surprising. Um, but it, it's it's hard to imagine something like this because of its leaderless nature, um, because of the fierce repression, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a second, that accompanied this late, latest round of, of protests. It's hard to imagine this uh, being something sustained. Uh, so in terms of the, the government's response, they uh, have uh, have been extremely heavy-handed uh, in ways, I think, that have... That have uh, shocked people who have become accustomed to repression. Um, some of this took the form of rounding up uh, uh, a kind of uh, the usual suspects. Um, so people like Ala Abdel Fattah, who are not, uh, who have no relation. So activists from ten years ago who haven't been active. At Absolutely. All uh, so uh, and that and then other sort of 
uh, uh, notable opposition figures, um, people like Khaled Dawood, a former spokesman for an opposition political party, Hassan Nafa, a politically engaged political science professor, um, have been thrown into jail. Uh, it's, in in some ways as a warning to others, but but also as a kind of indiscriminate response to uh, uh, to the a kind of outbreak of opposition, uh, a, an attempt to squelch uh, uh, the opportunity for political figures, intellectuals, leaders to use the protests as as a, as a way to create political space in Egypt. Um, there's also been indiscriminate arrests. So uh, checkpoints in the street, people, uh, plainclothes police checking the phones of random people looking at their social media feeds to see if they're, um, they contain opposition content. Um, and, and those kinds of spot checks have, have led to arrests. And so there have been thousands of arrests since, uh, since this outbreak uh, of protests. Um, and I think it's, it's frankly... It's such, the, the, the scope is such that it has, I think, surprised some people. Um, and um, it's the first time this regime ha has come really face to face with this kind of, uh, of discontent. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to, and then we're going to try and, and make sense of these two, uh, these two developments. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? The lines of critique are clear. Providing realistic policy proposals is a whole other thing, and much more difficult. I'm Dan Benayim, and with my colleagues at the Century Foundation, we're trying to ask and answer the hard policy questions and come up with specific proposals that move the ball forward. You can see our ideas and join the conversation yourself at our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm here with Maria Fantapier and Michael Weed Hanna talking about the uh, newest iteration of Arab revolts or, or uprisings or uh, the, the latest Arab Spring. Uh, it seems to me from listening to both of you talk that that there's one big common uh, thread here and one big difference. And the, the common thread is uh, that there just is not a political avenue uh, for people to seek any policy change. And so protests break out because of the absence of, of any political process. Um, and the big difference seems to be uh, that Egypt is engaged in an experiment of trying to create a zero politics environment, a place where there is literally no political space. And in Iraq, I'm, I'm curious if, if this sounds right to you, Maria, uh, the, the ruling class is trying to figure out how to manage discontent in a system where they can't erase politics because there's simply too much, uh, there's too much openness and pluralism in people's ability to express things, even if they, they don't actually share, uh, power. Yes. Uh, um, um, the situation is, uh, it has def definitely that difference uh, in, uh, in Iraq, you have a political scene where even um, within this, the, the three main communities, you have differences. So in, in particular within the Shia community, um, already even in last, uh, during last par parliamentary elections, uh, um, uh, the Shia community was uh, um, uh, competing, uh, they were competing factions within. So it is, um, it is a political scene. We 
which is uh, very diverse, were also, um, uh, or at least diverse, uh, were also some actors uh, that are uh, um, uh, like Muqtada Sadr and its movement have really tried to sort of translate um, into a political project what the uh, protest movement actually uh, want, or at least the discontent of the of the protest movement. But I would say that uh, in the two cases, despite even in Iraq there is this uh, this pluralism that you you were referring to, even in the case of Iraq we are in a in a at, at the sort of a moment of impasse because uh, despite all this uh, cycle of of protest in 2015, uh, we have not yet found a way out from this. And what we see that is very dangerous is that every time that protests break out, then they become uh, the, 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 the clashes between protesters and security forces and the level of anger becomes stronger and stronger. And it becomes less and less containable, uh, even for the government to, to carry on just with cosmetic reform or clientelist redistribution of, of, of concessions. So this doesn't work anymore. So um, I think that despite that pluralism, because the movement of the street does not want to engage in politics, at least with these politics, we still are um, and to um, uh, we still are, are in an impasse that has to be yet resolved. Two two things I want I want to quickly ask you to respond to, Maria. And we were bo- we were both in in Iraq a few weeks ago, and we were there the day Abdul uh, Abdul Bahab Al Saadi was fired and and saw him on on stage at the. Rafidain's uh, dialogue. Uh, and the two things that struck me subsequently watching these protests break out, one is the way in which this particular round of protests is an entirely Shia affair, right? The earlier protests were, uh, there were Sunni protest camps, there were secular communists working with Shia, there was a sort of gloss of, of, of every community in the country being represented. And this time, the Sunnis have intentionally stayed home, I think, to avoid provoking the wrath of of the security service or being somehow tainting the movement with some, you know, imputation that it's ISIS related or sectarian. So it's almost entirely Shia taking the streets and then being killed by Shia security services. So I'm interested in what the significance of that is. And, and related to that, I heard a lot of people disturbingly saying to me, and these not important people, just sort of regular Iraqis saying, you know what, we'd like to have a Sisi here in in, in Iraq because our Mohassasa system, our spoil system of, of uh, you know, every party taking its slice has frozen us in, in uh, you know, in a, a deep freeze for 16 years. Nothing seems to change it. No election, no protest, no foreign pressure, no domestic pressure. Let's have a strong man who can at least, you know, start delivering some of the things that, that we're being deprived of. Uh, and that that surprised me. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious how that relates and, and what what you heard along those lines. Yeah, I will be careful actually to see this uh, protest as a, um, a strictly Shia protest uh, within the, for instance, the civic uh, activist movement. It is in Baghdad, which is a mixed populated city, of course, predominantly Shia, but still mixed populated. You had 
mean, any sort of also non-Shia, um, uh, I mean, it's a secular movement where different people from different uh, sect and ethnicity actually participate. So um, uh, uh, it, it, this was not a Shia mobilization alone, but it is true that, uh, uh, yes, the, the Sunni provinces in this case, the, they stayed uh, silent, uh, not because they don't share uh, the same sentiments of uh, of, um, of disappointment, but because uh, uh, also not only the Sunni provinces, actually also some of the Shia main cities like Basra, who had experienced just a year ago a huge uptick in protest, actually there was not such a huge mobilization as people predicted. So I think that the lens to understand this is that in some areas, including predominantly, um, uh, um, uh, including predominantly um, Sunni areas, but also Shia areas, the fear of repression kept people staying home. In other areas, wherever in the, instead it was possible to go in the street, there was this, uh, and the, wherever there was actually this coordination or this social media influencer and also um, a sort of like uh, um, a minimal um, uh, cell of coordination among protesters, then that uh, that the, the protests ha have happened. So I will stay away a bit from the sect, uh, um, sect paradigm to understand that. But for sure, Sure. Um, and as of now, uh, the Arab part of Iraq is largely, um, I mean, the Shia are a majority. And uh, I think that now there is a search within the Shia uh, community in Iraq to how to define the national identity. And there are different uh, visions for that national identity. There are people who are Shia who are engaged in paramilitary groups that have links to Iran, and they want um, a type of Iraq that uh, looks like much more like Iran. There is, on the contrary, large sections of the population, uh, of the Shia population that seek to have a specific Arab Shia identity, which is different from that one of the Iranians. And there are also sections of the Shia community which are engaged in cross-sectarian civic movements who thinks that the sect and ethnic identity should not actually define the political system of the country. As for your last point concerning the search for a, for a strong man, I think that sometimes there is a sort of um, confusion uh, that people make because when they speak to us also also as foreigners, because I think that there is a search indeed for a leader. People they want actually they they seek like they seek a, a leadership for the country, a leadership that has a vision for the country, uh, and this is why the personality of this commander, who is Abdul Wahab Al Saidi, who is a very quiet man in fact, who does not like to speak to media, who is not necessarily. Um, speaks so much, and but he's someone who is uh, who is a symbol uh, and who has actually um, uh, performed his national duty with integrity. People look at this as a symbol and as a leader. So people seek that sort of leadership. Um, I don't think that uh, people they they want actually a a new Saddam or a new C or a Sisi leading the country. On the contrary, once uh, uh, Nouriel Maliki, a previous prime minister, was in 
place and he was accused of authoritarian style of governance, there was a lot of internal opposition uh, against it. So I think that people, what they seek is a leader or a leadership which is different from that one that they have um, suffered from uh, since 2003. And who has, uh, who has the ability really to uh, establish a different pact with its society, not on the basis of the sect identity, not on the basis of the um, uh, clientelist redistribution of goods, but on the basis of the um, of citizenship. Michael, is, author- is authoritarianism uh, still retain the gloss and legitimacy that it that it that it thinks it does? Well, it, in, in some ways, it, it it's not about uh, gloss of of legitimacy; it's sustainability. Uh, you know, so you know, I think there's been there was a, a, a good deal of wishful thinking. Um, really because of how bleak the situation is in Egypt uh, about what these protests mean uh, and what they could mean for the future. You know, in distinction to Iraq, where um, the the kind of authoritarian repression of the protest was coupled with um, a political response that clearly uh, internalized the idea that this was a crisis. Um, there, you know, Adel Abdel Mahdi addresses the nation, uh, is talking about some of these grievances, uh, not dealing with them effectively, but at least acknowledging them. A bad response that at least acknowledges that a response yeah. is demanded. Uh, in Egypt, it, you know, it is a, um, a course with no corrections. Uh, it is uh, one ratchet, which is, uh, you know, increasing repression. Um, and the response uh, is unbending. You know, it, it is simply to escalate repression. There, there is no way for uh, popular movements uh, in this case to uh, have their grievances uh, aired and internalized by the political system in a way that produces policy change. Um, so what we do know is that, that, that this course forward is going to uh, produce poor results uh, for Egypt. You know, the macroeconomic picture looks much better than it than it did in 2013, 2014. But uh, again, there is this huge gap between that macro picture and and, and the impact that has had on individual uh, lives, particularly of the poor. We have growing inequality, uh, growing poverty, um, uh, and yet. Uh, we shouldn't then automatically assume that that these kinds of that this negative trajectory in, uh, is indicative of of an unsustainable political situation. Um, it might just be a disaster that remains sustainable for some time to come. Right. I mean, terrible terrible governance can be sustainable, and that's that's unfortunate. Uh, but it's it's true. In I mean, throughout the region, and especially in the in the two cases where that we're talking about, you know, we've seen now uh, a generation in Iraq's case of, of, of turmoil and change. And in, in Egypt's case, you could argue back to also 2000, the protests, uh, the Pal- Palestinian protests uh, in Egypt that began the, the cycle of protests that we're still witnessing today. In both, in both cases, uh, you, you put this nicely, Michael, you said, of course, without a correction, these are rigid systems. Remediating them does not necessarily require democracy, although that's my personal preference. Uh, But in both cases, we have a system. In Iraq's case, it's a a communal spoil system. In Egypt's case, it's military rule, uh, which govern poorly and which are immune to political pressure. They've, 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 in very different ways, walled themselves off. And I, I guess 
I'm I'm surprised by how well they can weather these kinds of protests. Um, and I wonder if there is there a point where uh, popular protest actually means they have to change something, or is this just is this just a cost of doing business if you're a a, a bad government that's willing to kill its own citizens? Well, it depends on what the real vulnerabilities are. I mean, I've I've thought for a long time. Uh, that the the greatest vulnerability to re- regime sustainability uh, for this current configuration of leadership uh, in Egypt um, is internal, um, because because of the lack of organized political power, uh, because of uh, of the lack of of real opposition and dissent. Um, it is the internal divisions that we know exist within the security establishment. Um, that that might create vulnerability. Um, those can work in parallel, um, and 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 uh, the popular protests can have a kind of synergistic effect to, to embolden uh, actors. But it's a black box, and um, while we know that there are divisions, uh, none of this has emerged in a way that uh, that has um, created political space. Um, none of this has emerged in a way um, to really change uh, politics in the country. So. Uh, you know, a lot of the hope placed on, you know, a new hero general, um, which, you know, surprisingly, I, you know, I've heard talk about to say, you know, a coup would be fine. You know, uh, it would be, it can't be any worse than it is now. And that's kind of the only prospect we have for political change. And we keep learning that it can always get worse. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it, you know, it's a reflection of the hopelessness of the political situation, uh, but it also reflects some wishful thinking. I mean, we don't know exactly what's happening within the security establishment, and we, we'd sort of be the last people to know about something like that. Um, but it, it's it's reflective of this of this dead end, um, and a sense that there there is no way uh, to shift the course uh, of uh, you know of of political uh, political thought uh, of economic planning. Um, you know, it's it's a real dire situation, uh, and and Egypt seems immune to both uh, external uh, pressure, which has uh, dramatically decreased in recent years, particularly with the coming of the Trump administration, um, and uh, and is is unwilling to countenance the possibility of of that kind of bottom up uh, domestic uh, uh, pressure. Um, so it's you know it's I'm I'm pretty pessimistic. What about you, Maria? Uh, I am very concerned as of now of uh, this dead end that Michael was uh, was mentioning because uh, also uh, as you also mentioned actually the, um, the even the system in Iraq despite being more open uh, it is uh, immune uh, to to change in some way it's like a closed loop in a way yeah it's in a loop and also it's immune to change because it doesn't know how to change so the outcome and the end result is the same. So I think that here we all the time uh, speak about how what the government and the political class has not done. I think that we have to look in both boxes, in the box of the government and into the also box of the street, because also this street protest, in a way or in another, we can say that despite having put pressure, they really haven't 
had any uh, like any impact in changing in meaningful, meaningfully changing something within the the system of of every of Iraq. So I think that the government, for sure, it needs to um, get out from this idea where uh, you have to respond to demands, uh, because the protesters do not have specific demand. They have so many demands, and these demands can change any time. Can change also depending on the location where the protest happens. So you will never end of satisfying demand. And when you satisfy demands, you actually um, uh, sort of appease some and dissatisfy others. So this system of dealing with the society where you, for example, do like Prime Minister Adel Bumahdi did, which say, okay, we will offer these salaries, this stipendium to the unemployed. We will um, uh, appease the tribes with uh, in the South with certain concessions. We will give housing units to others. This, it's not a sustainable way of, of dealing with the process because, again, you will make some people happy and you will make some other happy or you will make some other think that in order to access more resources, you have to go and protest as well. But this is like, it's, a, it's again, it's something that has, has no end, basically. You know? in, a, in, a way, in a way, the protests reflect the, the pathology of the system. So they're asking for just a different distribution of the stuff. Uh, and not for a change in this uh, sick spoil system and its replacement with something that's more democratic or more responsive or less corrupt. Uh, so, so if they're appeased, it's just changing the shape of a tumor, basically, rather than trying to cure Well, I mean, there are some elements in the demonstrators, I think those ones especially who really are economically disenfranchised that do not necessarily... That they might think, as you said, that you might that they might think, okay, once they receive those concessions, they will be staying at home and they will not protest, um, at least temporarily. But I think that there is also a meaningful part of these demonstrators who do not necessarily see redistribution of goods as something that they are seeking for, but they're looking for. They're really searching for something different, which is. Uh, uh, which is a different way of really of the authorities to engage with the society. I mean, um, if you are, to give you an example, a young uh, uh, 20, 23 years old Iraqi who wants to establish its own company, uh, in uh, in Baghdad, it will be very difficult for you to have to 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 get the start with the with a startup um, on your own without uh, uh, dirtying your hand into making uh, um, agreements with uh, some political parties who will uh, and some militias who will not attack your office, some political parties who will start to give you money to sustain your project. And if you actually don't want to play that dirty game, you need to uh, step outside it. And you and and to step outside it, you need to have you know independent funding. You need to have to be you know um, to to be also fearless in front of potential threat that you might receive. So people are tired also of this type of things, of this cooptation game in which they are involved every single day in every single thing from a startup establishment to asking for a driving license everything has a price a price in terms of dignity and price a price in terms of like always asking people to basically bend their head and ask for favors to the 
to a powerful political party. So people are really sick about that rather than asking for more resources, I think. Um, but again, um, this is the side of the government, but also the side of the demonstrators. There is a responsibility from their side because there are certainly elements in it and specifically those upper middle class educated activists who are already engaged in private sector initiatives which are autonomous from the political party and also civic initiatives on um, like, uh, on different themes that from governance to water redistribution to uh, women's rights um, so on and so forward. All these activists, they are already organized under a platform. And I think that for them, it will be very important to play a sort of role of intermediaries between the government and the uh, um, larger protester movements, because they are those ones who are better place in doing that being on the one hand very much up to date with what the issues of that people suffer are and also in contact with the larger sections of the society through social media and at the same time also more able to understand how to actually partner with the government on specific governance initiatives reconstruction initiatives in ISIS liberated areas so again here the point is to find channel of cooperation between the government and these the sections of the society who do not who actually want to engage in determining what their future will be, what the future Iraq will be, but they don't want to be um, doing so according to the same rule of the games that those political parties since 2003 until now have established. And nearly a decade since the first protesters in the Arab world in Tunisia shocked, uh, shocked their fellow members of the region by going to the streets and risking death to call for the fall of the regime, we are still seeing people risking their lives to do the same thing. And two, uh, two constants, one, people seem to be endlessly brave and willing to die to make these kinds of calls, and governments seem to be endlessly willing to govern poorly in order to hold on uh, to their prerogatives um, and, and really unwilling to adjust even slightly uh, to come up with better ways of governing. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you uh, so much for joining the conversation, Maria and Michael. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And uh, you've been listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Until next time. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.